Hey there, buddy. Oh, gosh. You seem friendly today. You're buttering me up for something. I just want to start out on the right foot before we get into the topic. All right. So let me check what we got going on here today, I suppose. While Mike does that, I'll, I'll go ahead and get us started. Last week, I heard someone mention the Chicago Tylenol murders. And how? 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 <laughs> it was on another podcast. Sure. Okay. It was just mentioned in passing. They didn't cover it. They just said like, oh, it was like that thing. And so it sent me down this rabbit hole of this story. And so I wanted to share it here. Maybe this is better than the heat death of the universe or whatever else you probably could have picked for today. <laughs> it, this is a, a story full of tragedy, but one that's really interesting. And I think one that people may have forgotten about. Like I wasn't super familiar with it. It happened a couple years before I was born. But so let's just get into it. Let me set the scene. Mike, it's the fall of 1982. Ronald Reagan is president. The failing DeLorean Motor Company is in the news as is the fallout of the Falkland Wars. Italy, they've won the World Cup, and all the cool kids have Walkmans and mustaches are in style. What a time to be alive. (laughs) In this cloud of cigarette smoke, a story breaks in Chicago that would rock the United States and the entire world. On September 20th of 1982, a 12-year-old girl named Mary Kellerman dies suddenly in Elk Grove Village at the edge of Chicago. Later that same day... In a neighboring Chicago suburb, a man named Adam Janus also mysteriously passes away, followed by his brother Stanley and sister-in-law Teresa. A few days later, three more people die in the Chicago area, Mary McFarland, Paula Prince, and Mary Reiner. Investigators discovered that all of these people took Tylenol shortly before their deaths. Mary Kellerman was found by her father in the bathroom unconscious on the floor. The 27-year-old Adam Janus had called in sick from work with a cold. After picking up some Tylenol from a drugstore, he died at home. And as we said, the Janus family then lost two other members in rapid succession before the cause could be determined. That's really bad. Like, can you, I, you know what, I can't even imagine what it must be like to be no. in that family. It's, it's awful. It truly is heartbreaking. Mary McFarland was 31 years old when she died. She had complained to co-workers of a headache and took some Tylenol from the office kitchen minutes before collapsing. Paula Prince was a flight attendant and upon landing at O'Hare stopped by a Walgreens to pick up some painkiller. Police even found security camera footage of her buying the pills. Mary Reiner had just returned home from the hospital after giving birth to her fourth child and was using Tylenol to ease in her recovery. All seven of the deaths occurred within two days. Quickly, it was realized that all of these people were taking Tylenol. This is because EMTs are trained to ask about medications used by patients. And as many of these victims had shared with family members or co-workers their usage of the medication, a pattern then soon emerged. At the heart of this investigation was Dr. Thomas Kim, the medical director of Northwest Communities Hospital's intensive care unit. He had actually worked on Adam Janus's case. He then obviously realized something bigger was going on when the other two family members were brought in. He was working with Helen Jensen, a public health nurse who was called into the hospital after the deaths in the Janus family. Jensen went to the Janus house where she noticed a bottle of Tylenol and her gut said it was important after she noticed there were six capsules missing and three people were dead, which is pretty damn good detective work. Yeah, her work here is really, really impressive. At first, her theory wasn't believed until it came to light that paramedics had bagged Tylenol for the Kellerman's bathroom and that the control numbers on the bottles were the same, MC2880. 
there was an investigator named Nick Pichos who was working with them who noticed the smell of almonds when the bottles were dumped out. This is a sign of cyanide. The team ordered testing of the bodies, and this here is what we call a cliffhanger. Today's episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. We can all hold our hands up and admit that cybercrime is probably something we think happens to other people, because who wants your data? Well, the bad news is that stealing data from people like me, and maybe people like you, using public Wi-Fi is one of the simplest ways for hackers to make money. If you leave your internet connection unencrypted, your passwords and credit card numbers could be vulnerable. But there's something you can do to protect yourself from cybercriminals, and that is to use ExpressVPN, because it works by securing and anonymizing your internet browsing, encrypting your data, and hiding your public IP address. There's easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your device and can be turned on with just one click. Then you'll be free to safely surf on public Wi-Fi without being snooped on or having your data stolen. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. And I will say myself, I am a happy user of ExpressVPN. It's super fast, it's super easy to use, and I find it really easy, and I get that peace of mind now when I'm traveling and using uh, unprotected Wi-Fi. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. If you ever use public Wi-Fi and want to keep the bad guys away from your data, you need ExpressVPN. So go to expressvpn.com slash ungeniest where you can learn more and protect your online activity today. Find out how you can get three months for free at expressvpn.com slash ungeniest. That is exp com slash ungeniest for three months free of a one-year package. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of this show. So the lab results came back showing a massive amount of cyanide in the blood of the victims. On September 30th at 10 a.m., a press conference was held to tell the public that cyanide had been found in Tylenol and that it therefore should not be taken. Police started going through the area, removing it from store shelves, and by 3 p.m., Johnson & Johnson, the company that makes Tylenol, announced the recall of the product from lot MC2880. At this point, patrols are using loudspeakers driving through the city, warning people not to use Tylenol products. And the Illinois State Attorney General's office have been looped in, as well as the FBI. I suppose today it would be like an Amber Alert, right? It would be sent to our phones. I, I think this would trigger that sort of like mass communication. Mm. Absolutely. On October 4th, the city council passed an ordinance requiring tamper-resistant packaging for all drugs sold in stores. A day later, Johnson & Johnson recalled all Tylenol products nationwide. That's 31 million bottles valued at more than $100 million. The company worked closely with the Chicago Police Department, the FBI, and the Food and Drug Administration during the investigation. As you can imagine, this took its toll on the company, which saw its market share collapse from 35% to just 8%. But the move of a nationwide recall is now applauded by experts looking back at this who agree the company did exactly the right things in this situation. Its reputation and business would bounce back and thrive in part to a new triple-sealed package for its products when they wanted to put them back on the market a month later. Um, I think it's easy to see that if this was a company smaller than Johnson & Johnson, this probably would have been it. They would have uh, been out of business, definitely. Yeah. yeah. As all this was unfolding, the investigation gained international interest. And again, this is 1982. This is before the internet. You know, this is a old media type world. Mm -hmm. On October 6th, Johnson and Johnson received a letter demanding one million dollars to stop the Tylenol killings. The letter was traced to James Lewis in New York City. Police were unable to link Lewis with the murders directly, but he was convicted of extortion, served 13 years of a 20-year sentence, and was released in 1995 on parole. 
In 2009, unsealed court documents showed that at least some Department of Justice investigators had concluded internally that Lewis was responsible for the poisonings, but they did not have enough evidence to charge him for the crimes. Federal agents searched his home again around this time, but no charges were filed even after Lewis gave DNA samples to the FBI. Others involved in the case still believe Lewis was nothing more than a bad con man, and the truth will never be known. The murders do actually remain unsolved to this day. That's not to say there haven't been other leads. Roger Arnold was also investigated and cleared of the killings. He was a dock hand at Jewel Foods Warehouse, a chain where some of the Tylenol had been purchased. Arnold believed that Marty Sinclair, a local bar owner, had alerted the cops to him and later killed a man named John Stanisha, who Arnold mistakenly took for Sinclair. Arnold then served 15 years for that murder in prison. Jeez. <laughs> That's not a long time, huh? 15 years? That doesn't seem like enough, uh, and it seems like um, Arnold was quite unhappy about being investigated. Turns out. In early 1983, at the FBI's request... Chicago Tribune columnist Bob Green published the address and grave location of the first and youngest victim, Mary Kellerman, of course, with her family's consent. It was thought that the murderer may come to pay respects, but nothing resulted of a months-long surveillance operation. Sadly, these murders did spark copycat attacks. Three more deaths occurred in 1986 from tampered gelatin capsules. That same year, Procter & Gamble's Incaprin pain relief medication was poured from the market permanently after a claim of poisoning, which proved to be a hoax. There is some good that came from all of this. The pharmaceutical, food, and consumer product industries all worked to develop tamper-resistant packaging, such as induction seals, you know, things we see every day. And product tampering was made a federal crime. In fact, a woman named Stella Nickel was sentenced to 90 years in prison for product tampering after she killed two people with Excedrin capsules laced with cyanide in 1986. People are terrible. They truly can be, my friend. Yeah. So this uh, is... A hugely interesting and important story. There's a lot of links in the show notes this time. This is one of those articles that the Wikipedia article doesn't even scratch the surface. So I found this oral history and a great thing on Vice. Um, so there's a bunch of stuff in the show notes if you want to go read more about this. You can find all of those links over on the website, relay.fm slash ungenius slash 75. While you're there, you can get in touch. You can send us an email with a topic suggestion, or you can do that over on Twitter. The show is at Ungeniused. You can follow Mike there as I-M-Y-K-E, and you can find me at I-S-M-H. And until our next tamper-resistant product, Mike, say goodbye. Goodbye. Adios.